This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. He had, uh, he had been to this place before. It wasn't the primary place most people would go. It was down a little side street in a small room where a few people would gather and they would read the scrolls and they would pray. They would study. He'd been going there for some time and he'd heard some things that resonated with him and and he knew to be truth and, and he heard other things that he wrestled with. But on this day, he knew that when the time came, he, he would choose to step to the lectern. And on this day, he would read from the scrolls and he would make some comments. When he finished reading, because he knew what he was about to say, his heart began beating faster. Sweat popped out on his brow and on his hands. He, he, he knew this was not going to be well received. But it had to be said. So he went all the way back to Abraham and talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he dealt with Joseph and he got to Moses and he talked about how God used Moses to deliver the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt for 400 years and he he rolled through all of the, the Jewish history which in a synagogue they were very familiar with. But then he said, And you killed your shot at knowing God. And the atmosphere changed. Because just like in that day, even in this day in church, there are some things if you say, the atmosphere shifted and it started with a murmur, but it quickly elevated to a loud volume. And this was not a debate. This was you crossed the line and they would grab Stephen by the hair of his head and by hair of his head and by his beard and drag him out into the street and now what was some sort of conflict is spilling over and other people are saying what did he say why are you so angry and as they begin to hear you killed your shot at knowing God the masses are now angry they take him to the Sanhedrin it was the supreme court for the Jewish people. Now make, make no mistake, Rome was in charge. But they allowed this court to exist where they can make decisions with their own people about theology and doctrine and what's truth and what's not. And Stephen would stand in front of 71 men and look them in the eyes as they asked him to answer the charges. And he gave... He gave the same message he did down the road. He started with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, went to Joseph and talked about Moses delivering the children of Israel. And he finished everything he had to say. And then he looked at these men who would decide his fate. And he knew he was not trying to win an argument. He knew where this day was going. But in that moment, he had to be the mouthpiece of God and He looked into their eyes, the Jewish ruling council, the elite of the elite of the religious leaders, and he said, you killed your shot at knowing God. The uproar was instantaneous. This was the height of betrayal to the Jewish religion. And then, as though that were not enough, Stephen Stephen looks up at heaven and he says, And I see Jesus, the Son of God, standing at the right hand of God. Done. They would take him out of that room and take him to the edge of town, to the executioner's stone. They would throw him off the edge. It was about a 15-foot drop. Because before they would stone someone, stone someone, not stone someone. Before they would stone someone... They threw them off this drop, hoping somehow they would be maimed and they couldn't move around very quickly, which would make it easier to throw the stones and hit them. So as they throw Stephen and he lands, the men take their coats off 
and they pile them over here to the side. Then they go back and they warm up their arms and they grab the stones and they begin to hurl them. And Stephen, while trying to cover his head, you just can't. Stones are coming from every direction, pounding into his skull until eventually he drops. The cheers from the crowd grow even louder. And now they're throwing with the highest velocity humanly possible, just pelting his body over and over and over again. And Stephen would become the first martyr of the Christian faith. But over over where the coats were, there was a young attorney. His name was Saul. And he steps onto the pages of Scripture in this moment. And what is said of him is, he watched their coats and approved of what they were doing. And I don't know exactly how it happened, but something in that moment, something in seeing how how bloodthirsty the crowd was, how ramped up the people got, He knew he'd found his destiny. And he became the first religious terrorist. He would go from town to town and try to find people that thought like Stephen or claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. And he would drag them out and often beat them, murder them, have them thrown in jail. He did this with the blessing of the Roman Empire and with the blessing of the Sanhedrin. And Saul, he he was among the most brilliant And he saw a way to get to the top faster. He was already in a place that men twice his age didn't have his status. But he saw this as his ticket to the top. He would drag men out of their homes and put a knife to their neck. And he would have their wives and their children beaten until the man would damn the name of Jesus. And then one day, as he's going to the city of Damascus with letters from Rome about What's going to happen to people that are Christ followers? He was going to Damascus to do the same thing he'd done everywhere else. But on the way, he was confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. When Jesus looks down from heaven and sees what Saul is doing, and Saul was a mighty man, but a mighty man in front of an almighty God, no competition. It's almost like Jesus said, I'm not sending angels, I got to, I'm taking care of this. And we read in the book of Acts where Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And there, there is this moment. I mean, this is Saul who in this moment, over the next two to three days, there's a process of transformation where Saul becomes a follower of Christ. His life is changed. His name is changed. Saul becomes Paul. Saul, he was named Saul because he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And you remember the first Benjamite that had profound authority was the first king of Israel, King Saul. And he's named after King Saul. But now his name is changed to Paul because his life is changed. And he goes from someone involved in jihad to Jesus. There's this radical change, so much so that the early church, they heard, hey, uh, Saul is Paul now, and he's coming, and he wants to pray with y'all, hang out with y'all. Uh-uh. <laughs> no. We know what that cat's done. We've heard about it. Keep him away. Everybody was skeptical because of how horrific this man was. But Jesus completely changed his life. It is one of the greatest evidences that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, the changed life of Saul to Paul. Why would a man who was at the top of his game, who was among the elite in society, who was in charge of so much, so young, all of a sudden flip all of that to follow Jesus, to be beaten, shipwrecked, thrown in prison, and ultimately killed for his faith? It is said that Paul, other than Jesus, is the goat of the New Testament. We use that term goat, greatest of all time. You know, the goat. Tom Brady. I'm not a Buccaneers fan. I'm not a Patriots fan because I don't believe in cheating. But, but I'm, I'm not a, I, I, I don't buy into that stuff. But listen, Tom Brady, I, I can make the argument, greatest player of all time. 
That many Super Bowls, that many, man, give him credit. And he's brilliant. Last couple of days, is he retiring? Is he not retiring? Who knows? As long as you're talking about him, he doesn't care. But greatest of all time, in the boxing world, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson at his prime, he could look at you crossways, you'd, you'd, you'd pass out. It's interesting, in an interview, Mike Tyson said he would cry before every single fight because he hated the man he was about to become. Because with the fighter came anger and came other things. Mike Tyson, he was the goat. Then there's the debate. LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Who's the goat? And this debate is settled. It's Michael Jordan, obviously. Everybody that loves Jesus knows that. But that's a separate issue. But it's the, it's the goat. We, we, we use this term, the goat, when it comes to books. The Bible. I think the Bible is the goat. And maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ. Hey, I want you to know, first of all, you're welcome here. Secondly, our focus is your future. You don't have to agree with us to hang out with us, and we're not mad at you if you do disagree. But it wouldn't surprise you to know that we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And you think about it, even if you're not a Christ follower, there has been no other book more scrutinized and demonized and more of an attempt to discredit than the Bible, which has been printed more than any other book. It's the goat. And theologians, many biblical theologians believe in the Bible the book of Romans is the goat of the Bible. Now, I, I don't know how you decide that or dissect that because it is all the word of God, but I do understand that Romans deals a lot with our theology. That is a, a church word, our theology. Theology, literal definition is the study of the nature of God and religious truth. Rational inquiry into religious questions. And so today, I'm, I'm beginning something that I've not done in about 15 years. I'm beginning a study in the book of Romans where we are going to go verse by verse through the book of Romans, 434 verses. And here's why. Over the past few months, I've really sensed God doing some things in my life, and I, I step back and I look at our world where there's more confusion than there's ever been. There's more hatred than love. There's more anger than hope. There's more strife than peace. And I believe people are hungry to know truth and where to find hope. And I think part of what we wrestle with in life is often as followers of Christ, we have a belief system, but we have no idea why we believe what we believe. So when life gets difficult or life falls apart, we, we have no foundation. We have no underpinning theology for why we believe what we believe. And so this morning is going to be very different. If you're here for the first time this morning, man, I hope you come back next Sunday. This morning, I just sort of want to introduce the book of Romans. It's been called the go to the Bible. And, and, and I want to give you through this book some, some theology for today, a foundation of knowing why you believe what you believe and how that impacts your life. And it's not going to be a history lesson, although we'll learn some history. It's more about, hey, here's what God was doing so we can understand what he wants to do now and what he's calling us to do and how we should live in a way that the one who invented and creative life, created life knows best how to live, how to bring that into our lives, our marriages, our friendships, our homes, our careers, where we don't just have an idea of, I believe in Jesus. So does the devil. I believe in George Washington. That doesn't do a thing for me today. Great guy. Glad he founded the whole, like, go George. But, And I'm afraid with our faith so often. I believe in Jesus. It's nothing but a phrase we say. There's no foundation that it's built on. We're going to learn doctrine. Doctrine is the teachings of our faith. It's the core and the systems of what we believe to be true and, and why. I want you to know why you believe what you believe. See, the Word of God says, in fact, it, it was Paul that God used to say this, that even in a church, anything you hear in a church, anything you hear from a pastor, listen, you do not need me to get to God. Some people sometimes have stuff going on in their lives. They say, oh, I need to meet with you. No, you need to meet with Jesus. You need, you need to meet with Jesus. You, you don't need me to get to God. You can study the Bible for yourself. And so I'm going to do my very best asking the Spirit of God to lead me, to break down and, and teach the verses in this book. And there might be some things we disagree with. And if we disagree, I'm not mad about it. I hope you're not. 
Because we're all on a journey. And ultimately, this is not about what I think or what you think. It's about what the Spirit of God says. And he has one opinion. It's not like an opinion for you, an opinion for me. And so there is a striving to, to know the Word of God so that we can be thriving in the life he's called us to live. William Tyndall, the great missionary, said of Romans, quote, it is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, the most pure gospel, and also a light in a way under the whole scripture. The early church father, John Chrysostom, had Romans, the book of Romans, read to him up to four times a week. God is going to use this book over the next 39 or 40 weeks to shape your thoughts to form your beliefs, to grow your faith, to teach us what following Jesus while being grounded in eternal truth with an eternal purpose looks like. So verse 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ. Stop. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible says of itself that it is the very breath of God. It was written by human authors, but I believe they were divinely inspired by God. And if you don't believe that, we can still be friends. But I do believe that. I I believe it is literally the Word of God. I I think there's no error. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing you or I as humanity can improve on what God had to say. That's the perspective that I'm coming from. So that means that every single word in the book is placed there strategically and on purpose by God. And God means what he says, and God says what he means. And so, in this first verse, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, it is so easy, especially if you've been a Christ follower some time, to glance over or read quickly through certain phrases in the Word of God that have meaning. You just have to dig a little for it. This is not going to be lazy reading. This is not going to be quick glancing. This is going to be something that we are going to unearth some truth that is going to have a major impact in our lives. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Gospel is a a Bible word. It literally means good news. I don't think there's ever been a time that the world needed good news more. Paul, a servant of a servant of Christ Jesus, a a servant. How how many of you, I wonder, the main goal of your life is to be a servant? That's not something we think about. Servant is not something we pursue. In fact, we have jobs where we make money where we can pay other people to serve us. Servant is not something that's part of my thinking. It's not something I chase in life. I, I don't have goals written down, the top one being, I want to become a servant. But somehow in the economy of God, It's a big deal. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. This verse reminds me right in the beginning that we serve a God who serves us. We serve a God who's been serving us. Paul declares himself a servant. He takes on the same attribute of Jesus because Jesus serves. Jesus left heaven to come to earth because you and I had a need, and by doing so, he was serving us. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life and showed us how to live in a broken, dark, hurting world, and in doing so, he was serving us. Jesus went to a cross and died a cruel death for you and for me because of our sin, and in that, he was serving us. Three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating death and hell forever, making a way that you and I can know God and call him Father, and in doing that, he was serving us. Then for a period of time on planet Earth, after the resurrection, he taught and he saw at least 500 people saw him in person after the resurrection and he was serving. Then he ascended back to the right hand of the Father in heaven where he continues to serve us today as he is praying for us, blessing us, giving us wisdom, answering our prayers, involved in our lives. He is someone, Jesus, who is constantly serving us. So Paul is identifying with Jesus and who Jesus is. We serve a God who serves us. You know, we live in a culture that is not unlike the day of Saul. And as followers of Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there is more and more of a a pushback in our culture to what Scripture teaches. More and more, if you believe and I believe what the Bible teaches, you're ostracized. 
And the price for following Jesus authentically is getting higher. It's not what it was in that day, but it's not what it was when I was a kid. We have a culture that more and more denies the teachings of Scripture and pushes back against those who follow Jesus. But let me remind us of something. Our culture, people, are not our enemy. People who disagree with us are not our enemy. People who believe differently than us are not our enemy. As the church of the living Christ, we have a responsibility to love people that do not love us, to be kind to people that are not kind to us. It takes the supernatural power of God in us. But listen, I don't know why in the world as followers of Jesus, we expect people who don't know him to live like they do. Our culture. I've been a part of too many churches that spend a lot of time in messages bashing the culture. That is not the purpose of this because we live in a culture made up of people and every single person you and I like eyes with is deeply loved by God no matter what they believe. And we have a responsibility to love. Saul is blinded by Jesus on the road to Damascus and he comes to a conclusion. His conclusion is, I was wrong. Jesus is right. And Saul is transformed by the mercy and the grace of of Jesus, and he becomes a a follower of Christ. He goes from murdering Christians to pastoring churches, and he becomes a servant of Jesus. How does he serve? He serves by what he does, and he serves by what he says. The same way you and I serve Jesus, by what we do and what we say. What, What did Paul do? Well, for over 10 years, he walked about 20 miles a day. That was like pre-Peloton, 20 miles a day. He he preached messages no one wanted to hear. He would go places and nobody wanted to hear what he had to say, but he would preach it anyway. Riots broke out wherever he went. And I actually called them riots, not peaceful protests. Like if it's burning, it's a riot. Everywhere he went. He spent time in prison for his message. He was beaten for his faith numerous times. Here's how Paul describes it. Here, here's his resume. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants, there's that word again, big deal to Paul, big deal to Jesus. Rather, as servants of God, We commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. You thought you had a bad job. You don't have a bad job. That's a bad job. That's a rough life. What if that described your life? You may hate your job, but it's it's not that bad. On five different occasions, Paul was given 39 lashes. 40 lashes would kill a man. So on five different occasions, he was spared by one lash from death. Three times he was beaten with a rod. He was himself stoned, but not to the point of death like Stephen. He was shipwrecked. He spent an entire night drifting on the open sea. He endured more than you and I could ever imagine. And remember, he did that. Answering the purpose and the call of God for his life abandoning a life of comfort. Paul was from Tarsus. And he was Jewish, but about 15 years before this, the Roman Empire stripped citizenship away from anyone that was not insanely wealthy or had not served the empire of Rome well. And Paul's family was not stripped. He's still a Roman citizen, even though he's Jewish. He he walked away from a promising career, being promoted faster than anyone else ever had, He abandoned all of that for this. Why? Jesus gave everything to serve him. So Paul is going to give everything to serve Jesus. Jesus left heaven to pursue Saul, who became Paul, and Paul is going to do whatever it takes to pursue others. And we're going to learn a lot about Paul in the book of Romans. But as we do, I'm praying that you and I, we don't just embrace the theology of Paul, but we embrace the heart of Paul. I know a lot of people that know a lot of theology that are mean, angry people. 
Have you ever met an obnoxious religious person? They usually don't stay around here very long, and for that I'm grateful. Still love them, love them, love them. But, but some people are so proud of what they know, more than who they know. We need to embrace not only the theology we're going to learn, but we need to allow that theology to drive the beat of our hearts so that we have the heart that Paul had for Jesus and for people. He does whatever it takes, whatever it takes to tell people about Jesus and bring people to Jesus. In fact, it was Paul whose zeal and passion for Christ and for people knowing Christ that would take the message. It was Paul that took the message to the Gentiles. It needs to go beyond this small Jewish country. And so it's because of Paul and how God used him that you and I even know about Jesus 2,000 years later in a whole different country. It was Paul. We live in a culture in Orlando, Florida, defined by vacations. Number one vacation spot in the world and by entertainment. I think vacations are awesome. I believe in taking them. I love entertainment. I believe in enjoying it. I believe God created us to enjoy life. But I do not believe that vacations and entertainment are to replace our God. And I think in our pursuit of life, rather than pursuing comfort, we, we have to pursue Jesus. And Paul shows us that. Paul gives up a secure, extravagant lifestyle so that you and I can hear about Jesus. His passion, his daily concern every day was people and churches because when you've been changed by Jesus, you love people and you love church because Jesus loves church. You look at the world, there's so much human suffering around us. We talk about it all the time. From human trafficking to people in need all over the world, people in areas where they don't have clean water, People in areas where they're starving. I mean, you can watch the commercials. You can read the news. We, we know what's happening in our world, and we, we can't stand the idea of human suffering. But if we genuinely care about suffering, we cannot, we cannot ignore the worst suffering, which is eternal suffering. Everybody the last couple of years has been losing their minds. Oh, COVID, we're, we're going to die. It's COVID, we're, we're going to die. <laughs> You do understand people died before COVID, right? Like, you do understand everybody. Like, this is not new information. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. I'm not making light of. I'm just putting into correct perspective. You're going to die. Welcome to church. You're going to die. I'm going to die. That, that's part of life and part of what happens. But, but we've lost our minds. Listen, it's not news. Every single one of us is going to die. The issue is not, am I going to die? The issue is, where do you go after that? And what did you do before that that helps other people go somewhere after that that matters? It's not about, am I going to die? It's about what happens next. And we need to make sure every single person we know experiences an eternity with Jesus and knows that it's secure with him. Because if you're a follower of Christ, no matter how bad this week is, that is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. It's as bad as it gets. Whatever we go through here. Thank you. All 12 of you cowboy fans that don't have anything to clap for anymore. <laughs> Paul becomes a servant of Jesus in what he does, but also what he says. He's our example. We serve in what we do. We serve Jesus in what we say. Paul would study under Gamaliel. He was the leading rabbi in the Jewish culture. This would be like getting a degree from Harvard and Paul graduating top of his class. He would speak Hebrew, which is the language of the Old Testament. He would speak Aramaic, which is what the Jewish people spoke in their homes. He would speak Greek, which is the language of the New Testament. And most scholars believe he would speak Latin as well. Paul is brilliant. There are over a hundred times in the New Testament writings where God inspires Paul that Paul quotes the Old Testament. God would use Paul to write 13 books in the New Testament, but there is some debate over who wrote Hebrews, and there's some biblical scholars that believe he wrote Hebrews, and if that's the case, 14 books in the New Testament written by Paul. If you're new to church, the Bible is divided into what we call two separate books, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books that prepare us for the coming of Jesus. In the New Testament, there are 27 books that talk about the coming of Jesus and what's next. Acts chapter 13, verse, um, yeah, chapter 13 through chapter 28, the entire focus is Paul's missionary journeys. Dr. Luke, who wrote more words, God used Luke to write more words in the New Testament than anyone else, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. 
Dr. Luke was Paul's traveling companion. Paul was his pastor. And when Paul would be beaten, it was Dr. Luke, a medical doctor, that would put him back together. With no Paul, there's no most of the New Testament. Paul serves us in giving us the Word of God, what he does, but also what he says. And in a world filled with bad news every day, Paul was infusing some good news. In a world that was debilitated with with problems and the darkness and downside of a highly religious culture, Paul points to the one solution, which is Jesus Christ. See, I believe you and I also live in a world that is desperate for hope, a world that is craving some good news, and we have the answer. His name is Jesus. If you want hope, the answer is Jesus. Not hope that is delusional or some sort of fantasy, but hope that is solid and secure, that you can build a life, a future, and an eternity on. It's Jesus. Our world tends to value intellect but ignore wisdom. There's some people that are educated beyond their intelligence. It's fully possible to have a great education and no wisdom. If you don't think so, walk on a college campus. It's why some of the smartest people do some of the dumbest things. Have you ever looked at somebody and thought, you're so smart. Why did you do something so stupid? Like, how, how, how can you not? You have all these degrees and letters after your name, but you think, What? As we study Romans, two things are going to happen. And you need to know this. Here's the disclaimer. Two things are going to happen. One, there are going to be some things we talk about that are confusing and complicated. I've already told you how brilliant Paul is. There are some things the Spirit of God uses Paul to write that can be confusing. They can feel complicated. And I am going to do my best to break that down and make it as simple as possible as long as you understand that I'm not Jesus, I'm not perfect, I'm doing my best, this is what God's called me to do, but you have to own your own spiritual growth and your own study and you dive in and you study it for you. But there are going to be some things that you feel like, man, I just don't understand this. And when you feel like that, welcome to normal. That just means you're normal, it's okay. It doesn't mean you're behind. It means there are some things. Even Peter, who wrote two books in the New Testament and was the leader of the early church, said, hey, Paul's complicated. I mean, there's just some things that are hard to understand. Another thing's going to happen as we study the book of Romans. There are going to be moments that you're going to feel offended. Now, I got to be honest with you. We have gotten very good at that in the last few years. We have, most of us, earned PhDs in feeling offended. It is not hard to offend us. If I say, man, I love dogs, somebody will say, why do you hate cats? I didn't say anything about cats. Didn't bring it up. I hate cats, but I didn't say it. (laughs) We we are so good at being offended all the time. We're ready for somebody. In fact, we normally, in conversations of what we hear about people, we tend to assume the worst so we can be offended. And I've noticed that being offended is contagious. But the Bible says don't take up another's offense, but that's a separate thing, and that's later. That's later. There are going to be some things we come across in the book of Romans. You're going to feel offended. You're, You're going to feel like with some of the things we come across in this book, you're going to think that's wrong. That's wrong. And when you think that, you're wrong. See, you're at church, so let's just be honest for a second. Part of the reason you're here is because there is some part of you, maybe you're convinced or maybe you're still questioning, but there's some part of you trying to determine and decide, is this book the word of God? Is God real? Does he love me? Does he know how to live life? We've been given the gift of the word of God. And there are times that I read things in the Bible that inside I bristle. And part of growth, part of maturity is being able to say, okay, God, I don't understand this. I don't know why you do it this way. I don't know that I like it, but I'm wrong. You're right. There are going to be some things you're going to feel offended about. For example, it won't be long. We'll get to a passage that says you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And that can feel offensive. That feels like such a a harsh word. 
But how in the world is the gospel the good news about God loving us, saving us, forgiving us, if we can't confront the reality of the bad news that I am broken, messed up, busted, and disgusted, and without hope, without Jesus? See, before the doctor tells you how you're going to be cured, he's got to tell you what's wrong with you. And so the reality is there are some things we're going to come across that, that are going to feel offensive. But just because you feel offended does not mean it's not true. We're going to talk about some difficult issues that our culture is wrestling with. And Scripture teaches, the Bible teaches, and, it, and we'll come to it in Romans very quickly. And it's probably the week we get kicked off of YouTube and Facebook and everything else. But that's already happened once. But, but where God says, hey, I created boys and girls. Wait, I, I thought there was a spectrum. No? Boys and girls. What do you do with that? Now, let me say this. If you're here and you disagree with what I just said, I'm not mad at you. I don't hate you. I love you. Every single person is welcome at C3. But see, I have a responsibility to love you enough to say what some people may be unwilling to say. And, and, and I have grown very accustomed in my 50 your business years of, of, of people being upset with me because of what God wrote. I'm okay with it. Let me tell you what I will not do. I will not hate you. This is a place of love, and you do understand the most loving thing to do sometimes is say to people, here's the truth, even if it hurts a little bit. And you're welcome to come. You're welcome, and, and you, can, you can disagree. You can disagree through the entire study, and you're welcome to keep coming here. It's fine. We're not mad at you. We don't hate anybody. We love you enough to dare to tell you the truth and ask you to be courageous enough to examine it for yourself and just ask God, God, here's what you wrote. Is it true? I believe it's a prayer God will answer. But, but, but don't, when we get to those places and you get a little bit offended, don't, don't let the reaction be the immature reaction of culture that says you hate me. When my kids were little, I didn't let them play in the middle of I-4. I would say no because I love them. And I'm watching some people destroy their lives because they believe some things that are not true. And they've gotten stuck in a thinking and a pattern. And the only way to grow out of that is to be confronted with truth. And then here's the thing, you get to decide for you. You get to decide for you. But you need to know, there are going to be points that it feels complicated. There are going to be points that it's going to feel offensive. But when you read and study the Bible, in those moments where there's a difference of opinion, either you're right or the Bible's right. Either you're wrong or the Bible's wrong. And you've got to decide at some point in your life, is the Bible the word of God or not? Is it something I can build my life on or not? Is the Bible truth or not? And I mean, some people that say, well, there are parts of the Bible I believe and parts that I don't. Are you a crack smoker? Like, you think your mind, you are the authority for truth for all time, and you get to decide in the Bible what's from God and what's not. You've just made yourself God, and you're not even going to agree with some of your own opinions in 10 years. So, so you've got to decide. Let, let's, be, let's have intellectual honesty and integrity. You've got to decide, is it the word of God or not? And you get to decide that. But for growth to happen and for change to take place, sometimes we have to change our minds about some things, even when it's uncomfortable, some things we've been wrong about. That's called growth. I'm not always right. There are things I was, I was wrong with. I, I believe things differently now than I did 10 years ago about some things. I, I call that growth. As we continue to seek God and, and dig into his word and he works in our hearts and the spirit of God challenges us and convicts us and reveals truth to us. Romans chapter 12, we'll get to this verse. Verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of the mind happens through the absorption of the Word of God. If you will allow God, He will change your mind. And you will bring your life into a consistent pattern with what Scripture teaches. The biblical word is repentance. Repentance literally means a change of mind. It means I'm going one direction in life. I'm going one direction in my thinking. And there's a change of mind where I say, you know what? I was wrong. God's right. I'm going to go this way. That's called growth. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do you know what the pattern of this world is? Marriages that suck. 
parents that are ineffective. Friendships that are based on what we like, but the moment something's wrong, we bolt. The pattern of this world is the moment you become something that other people don't like, I leave you, I don't stay with you. The pattern of this world is to talk about each other and bash each other. The pattern of this world, you think the church is hateful? The pattern of this world? We don't know how to love people we disagree with anymore. It's the pattern of this world. And that's going to continue uh, until we are transformed in the renewing of our minds, which takes the Spirit of God through the Word of God in our lives. But, but you have to have the courage to come along for the ride. Here's what's incredible about Paul. He used to be Saul. If there's hope for Paul, there's hope for you and me. If there's grace for Paul, there's grace for you and me. If Jesus can love and change and use Saul and make him Paul, Jesus can love and change and use you and me. Jesus used the worst guy to do the best things to give the rest of us some hope. It began with being served by Jesus and then adopting serving as a lifestyle in Paul's life and the purpose of his life. And when we do that, it actually improves our lives. We can have better marriages, better friendships, better parenting. It improves our relationships. There are three kinds of relationships. And this is true in marriage. This is true in parenting. This is true in friendships. Three kinds of relationships. All of us are on the spectrum between selfish and serving. And some people, some people are like really selfish. If you have a marriage where both people are selfish, that is a horrible situation. It is always a conflict. It is always a fight. Everybody wants their own way. No progress is made. And life is hell on earth. Two people that are selfish. If you have a relationship where one person is selfish and one person is serving, that's called an abusive relationship. Where one person always gets their way and the other person always has to acquiesce. And one person determines everything. And the other person just has to be compliant and live underneath the weight of that. The third kind of relationship is where both people are servants. That is a beautiful relationship where each person is out trying to outserve the other person. Where would you like to eat tonight? I don't know. I want to go where you want to eat. No, let's go where you want to eat. No, really, I want to go where you Now, that can be so annoying you want to slap a monkey, but at some point, <laughs> at some point, the idea is if there are two people in a relationship trying to outserve and trying to put the other person first, listen, you might not want to be like that, but you definitely want to be married to somebody like that. So what does that say? You and I need to understand that it begins with serving. God is calling us to be servants in our marriages, in our families, and in our world. Parents, let, let me, could I just maybe give you some advice that's maybe worth pondering? I, I could be wrong, I'm not, but, but you could think I am. As a father of four and grandfather of four, almost five, our second daughter, Ashley, the due date is tomorrow. We tend to think, if my kids just had better servants, if I could get a teacher to, that would serve them better and a coach that would serve them better and a tutor that would serve them better, and if, if the world would serve my kid better, listen, your kid being served is not what's going to develop maturity and growth in their lives. It's when they become servants. It's when you set an atmosphere of showing them what it looks like to love God and love others. They don't need more people serving them. You and I don't need more people serving us. We need to learn what it means to be servants because servants change the world. They change what people think about God. A lot of times people push back on God because people that follow Jesus are just so selfish and so mean. If we actually serve the servants. Some of you are going to go to lunch after this, and you're going to go to Waterford, and whoever that server is, she's not going to give you great service, and you're going to be mad, and you're going to think about not leaving a tip. And if you do that, please, please don't tell her you go to C3. Please don't say anything. Give her the name of a different church, any church. Fine. It's okay. Jesus will work it all out. But you haven't thought about the hell and the reality that she may be walking through and what she may be struggling with. And there's a time where maturity says you've got to check your rights at the door and you've got to love God and love others and stop expecting other people to be perfect when you are not. Stop expecting other people to serve you. How can you serve them? See, you can't be like Jesus unless you're serving. 
you're not going to grow into who you could be if you're not serving others. Can you imagine if everybody in your family had a servant's heart? Can you imagine if everybody in our church had a servant's heart? We could change the city. Every life has problems and every life has pains. And what you need and what I need is a purpose that's bigger than our problems and our pains. As a follower of Christ, our purpose is to serve Jesus, the one who serves us. And on earth, we serve Jesus by serving people because Jesus loves people. That's verse one. (laughs) Look at this. Let's go to verse two. Why not? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel, remember, it means good news. He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament, regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. He's speaking of the royalty and the lineage of Christ and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's who Jesus wants to be, your Lord, my Lord. And Lord means he's in charge and I serve him. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. This gospel, this good news is not just for the Jewish people, it's for everybody. God wants to know everybody in a personal way. Every single person needs Jesus. Our alliance as followers of Jesus has to be to Christ, not our culture. Our first thought as a Christ follower cannot be what do they think, it has to be what does Jesus think. Jesus, Jesus, think about it. How is it that a Jewish carpenter could create a movement like the world has never seen before or since? How is it that the emperor of Rome is nothing but a footnote in the story of a Jewish carpenter? How is it that we measure time by the life of Jesus? Our calendar was reset because of his birth. We celebrate his birth at every Christmas and his resurrection at every Easter. A billion people worldwide claim to be his followers. Jesus, more songs have been sung to him, more paintings painted of him, more books written about him, and more lives devoted to him than anyone that's ever lived in all of human history. And Paul is saying there is nobody bigger than Jesus. There's nobody better than Jesus. The prophets told us he was coming, and he came. Stephen's message was, you killed your chance to know God. Paul's message is, Jesus was the Messiah, and you can still know him. You think about the prophecies. There are hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah. 700 years B.C., Isaiah wrote, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is going to come to be with us and he's going to be born through a virgin. And that was prophesied 700 years before he was born. 700 BC, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He has a family history that is rich and that is ancient, and the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. 400 BC, Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. It's speaking of John the Baptist, who was the messenger ahead of Jesus, pointing to Jesus. 1000 BC, Psalm 22, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. What is fascinating about this prophecy, this predicts that Jesus, the Messiah, will be crucified. But that prediction happens before crucifixion has even been invented. Nobody even knew about crucifixion when that prophecy was made. 1000 BC, Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father would forsake the son when he was hanging on the cross. 1000 BC, Psalm 16.10, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. So in just these few, there are hundreds, just these few prophecies, the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin and is going to be named Emmanuel in the town of Bethlehem, that small city, very precise point on planet earth. And someone's going to be going ahead of him, pointing the way to him, John the Baptist, and he's going to be crucified in the most sensitive nerve endings in the body, the hands and the feet. And it's prophesied before crucifixion was even invented. And God is going to turn his back on his son, the Messiah, because of his love for you and for me, but he's not going to leave him dead. Three days later, he's going to get up and defeat death and hell. There's nobody 
bigger than Jesus. There's nobody better than Jesus. The world is full of problems, and the one solution is Jesus. He's it. That's it. It's the message of Paul. Romans verse 6, chapter 1. And you also are among those Gentiles who are, listen to this phrase, called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy temple. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you know what that phrase literally means? In the language, it is an invitation to friendship. Jesus wants to be your Savior, your Lord, your God. But as big as God is, He wants to be your friend. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. He created you, and the ultimate reason He created you was for a relationship with Him. Called to belong to Jesus Christ, an, an invitation to friendship. Saul had religion. He was highly religious. And Jesus came and said, Saul, I'm not inviting you to religion. Religion destroys people. The problem is religion. Saul, I want your life to change, and I want you to become Paul because I want you to not have religion but to begin a relationship with the living Christ. And that same Jesus is calling you to belong, inviting you into a relationship with him. And your pains and your problems will always be paramount in your life until you discover your purpose of knowing a God who invites you to call him Father and walking with him day by day and serving him by serving others. Would you pray with me this morning? With heads bowed and eyes closed. Maybe today you know that the greatest need of your life is to give your life to Jesus to experience that transformation that Saul experienced when he became Paul. Maybe you know right now, not because of my voice, but because of what's inside you, that man, this is your day. You need to invite Jesus to come into your life and to forgive your sin and to be your Lord. If you'd like to take that step of faith, I want to invite you to pray a very simple prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of this moment, in the quietness of your heart. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus knows even our thoughts. So if you'd like to invite Christ to come into your life, because there's no one bigger than Jesus, there's no one better than Jesus, and he is the solution to all of our struggles in life. Just pray this simple prayer. Dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. Forgive my sin and help me to live for you. As best I know how, I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, would you look at me a second? If you just prayed that prayer, I'd love to know that. I want to invite you, grab your cell phone and shoot me a text. Just put your first name, just your first name, and send it to 407-487-8311. The reason I ask you to do that is because you really do matter to us here at C3. And I'll get the list of names this afternoon of everybody that prayed to receive Christ. And the reason I get that list, I ask for it because... I want to be able to pray for you by name today and throughout this week. You really do matter. I've got a free gift that I'd love to send you, so we'll reach out to you and get your contact info. I think it's something that you'll discover to be very helpful in your own personal growth.